Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Early Education Show. We're here with episode 41. It's good to be back with you. Uh, my name's Liam. I'm an early childhood teacher working in operations in the ACT, and my voice is even croakier than last week. Sorry, everyone. Mustn't be much fun to listen to. And I'm joined uh, by Leanne Gibbs, an early childhood uh, leadership and policy expert. Hi, Leanne. Hi, Liam. I normally go to Lisa first. I'm leaving her to second. My brain's yeah, all squishy. Yeah, Sorry. And then the normal yeah, first person. I was sick. I know. My brain's still swimming slightly. So I'm also joined, uh, and she shouldn't uh, take anything from the fact I've now bumped her to, to third on the list of people introduced by Lisa Bryant, an <laughs> early childhood advocate, writer, and consultant. Hi, Lisa. Hi, how are you? I'm not too bad. I've man flu's reached stage two or three now, you so it's a, sound very good, you know. No, my my plan is to say as little as possible, which was the plan last <laughs> week. It didn't really work. You know, I, I've got to tell you that um, uh, Leanne and I got together, and we've uh, you know how the the show has theme music. We've decided that this would be a good piece of theme music for you, just for today. So, just have a listen to this. <laughs> it's got that nice heavy tones, doesn't it? Wow, this could be like. Keep waiting a minute. Mm. It's good. My man's got a cold. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I could splice that in. I feel like should I should I know who that is? It's quite a nice voice, though. Well, it's actually. I'll stop it now, but it's um. It's actually Paul Kelly, a new song from Paul Kelly's new album. Oh, really? He's he's uh, changed his range. Man's of it. got cold. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Music. This is the first time we played music live on the show, everyone. <laughs> to, to varying degrees of success, I reckon. But it's you know, all about how everyone's been told that the man's got a cold, you know. It's it's your typical man flu Exactly. Sort of lots of sympathy. But I'm suggesting that you're not really sick there. No, I'm just after lots of sympathy. So if any listeners out there just want to send me a Facebook or Twitter thing, just, you know, just just, just an e-hug, an e-Twitter sympathy thing saying <laughs> how brave I'm being, go for it. But um, before you do that, let's do the news list. So I'm going to go first, so I don't have to talk for quite a while after that. Um, and this one's an article in the Daily Telegraph, uh, which refers to Good Start Early Learning pressing the, uh, I guess, the all levels of government to reduce rents for early childhood centres as a way of keeping fees down. Um, and I guess I'm just putting this in here as, um, I, look, again, I think this is just another symptom of the fact that the government's main big policy push in this area, the Jobs Families Package, is so manifestly ridiculous that we're still having to come up with, you know, all these solutions that, or, you know, solutions in inverted commas um, to fix these issues. Look, even if this was fixed, um, as described in the article, it wouldn't actually solve any of the major problems and any fees that did, did go down wouldn't last very long. Um, it just, uh, it's, it just kind of feels like we're having a conversation that you would, you wouldn't guess that a major flagship early childhood reform package are passed when these articles are still, you know, these are the discussions we've been having for, you know, 10 years or more. Um, so I didn't really have more to add than that, but just, it's just that we've still got, you know, huge issues with this stuff. And about the only other thing I was going to add is that it was dismissed out of hand by Simon Birmingham. So um, <laughs> just uh, for no, you know, no, that was the end of the discussion. So a nice thought bubble floated and popped quite quickly by the government. 
I think it, it it is really interesting though that Good Starters has entered this space because they do pay exceptionally high rents because they took over a lot of the ABC learning um, services that were um, you know that were running in um, from landlords that were kind of very closely associated with. ABC learning so they've always paid higher rents than average but it also just you know it talks to the fact that real estate is becoming a really big issue in um, childcare with landlords claiming that um, childcare properties are giving yields of about five percent per annum the real estate market is wild about childcare. I keep looking at the prices that childcare centres are changing hands and they think it's just a licence to print money and they actually quote that, you know, like one of the reasons why it's so good is because the government keeps investing more and more money in this space. So yeah. maybe Good Start is actually being quite accurate that this is one of the causes of high fees. Yeah, it's it's definitely in the mix, but I think it's just it's 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 one part of it. And if this is all we can focus on, we're not going to get anywhere, as usual. Um, Did you have a little look at the um, the gorgeous graph that there's that's been created there for the um, the for profit and the not for profit? Is it technically an infographic? Not quite, but um, uh, no, it's an interactive graph. It's an interactive I think we graphic. Call them. I quite mm-hmm. like that. I, I wondered, like, they, the figures for that have been taken from Ibis World and it shows, you know, as we know, that the not-for-profit sector spends more on wages than the for-profit sector. Um, but I actually think that the, the divide is a bit bigger than what it's saying it is. So I'd actually be interested to know how Ibis World got those figures. In terms of wages, you mean? It also yeah. puts the rent in not-for-profits at a higher rate than for-profits, yeah, which I'm, it is a bit off. Know, I'm a bit doubtful about that, but anyway. Okay. Mm. And then... It probably, uh, you know, I, I seem to remember that there was that Ibis World actually met with Good Start and so it could have been that they're looking at Good St- like that Good Start was the basis of their figures for the not for profit sector. Mm. Oh right. Well they're obviously pretty dominant in that space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now Lisa just to save on talking, you, you've got two articles now to bring us and you're you're taking us on a bit of a tour around I, Australia. So you're going to yeah. Tasmania and then Queensland. Yeah. For strap yeah, in. So- Tasmania is something that we've been about to cover on the Early Education <laughs> Show and haven't covered. I know, this um, is karma because we never got around to covering it. <laughs> so um, Maybe if we first, didn't cover anything, we'd get, everything would be resolved. Resolved. Yeah, well, whether this is actually a resolution or not and if it's a resolution for the right reason man, remains to be shown. But, uh, look, in a summary... The Tasmanian government was talking about reducing school entry age to three and a half, right? Um, So that um, uh, actually, as I say that, I'm not even 100% sure that that's right. Um, Certainly in this article it says start prep, which is the first year kind of like the first year of school. 
school in Tasmania at four and a half, but they were going to reduce it to three and a half. Is that wrong, Leanne, or have that I got correct. that wrong? No, no, that's, that's right. That's what the plan that's was. Correct. Okay. So this article's kind of got it a bit um, wrong. Anyway, and um, because they wanted an additional year, you know, for vulnerable children, they recognised that, you know, they have real problems in their education system, that a lot of people are coming out without um, the right amount of literacy and numeracy skills. And so they thought, okay, this is how we'll do it. We'll make sure that, um, uh, you know, low-income children in particular can get access to more education. Now, the early education care sector in Tasmania um, said this is outrageous for two reasons. One is because um, children need play-based curriculum. They don't need to go to school that early. And secondly, because it would cause so many um, uh, early years services in Tasmania to fail and that would mean that there wouldn't be then childcare for younger children because those services just couldn't be sustainable. So the government called, um, uh, you know, kept pushing ahead with their plan but they also hired KPMG to do a report on the impact that it would have on um, of changing the school starting age on early education and care services. And on Monday night they announced that no, it wasn't going to happen, um, that the starting school age would remain the same and instead they would give free um, play-based learning, in, you know, with a teacher to vulnerable and disadvantaged three-year-olds. When you get into the detail of what they've actually offered, is it's fairly similar to what um, you know exists in some other states and territories for three-year-olds. Um, uh, they'll get ten hours of free preschool for children who are vulnerable, Aboriginal, etc. Um, uh, delivered by an early childhood teacher. In addition to that, they're saying, you know, if you add in the 12 hours of um, subsidised care that people under a certain amount of income can get for jobs for families package, then that means that those children will have 22 hours of, um, yeah, fairly low-cost education and care. The package is only costing $10.5 and but... Um, you know, it's a targeted package. It's not a universal package, so it's only going to vulnerable children. It's not going to all children. And it seems to me that it would have cost a lot, lot more um, to actually implement the early starting age for school than the $10.5 that they're putting onto this. And this also won't start till 2020. So, in fact, the children that this will affect haven't yet been born. Is that right? Am I? Yeah, that's right, isn't it? Am I doing that? That's right. Um, yeah, so the two things that to me seem a bit strange about this is one, the, the, you know, the fact that um, it's a targeted rather than a universal package. It, in fact, will only affect... Two and a half thousand three year olds, um, which 
interestingly, it's 40% of all three-year-olds in Tasmania. Um, so, you know, it's, um, it shows what low-income um, pockets there are in Tasmania. But the other thing is that the reason they backflipped was because of the impact on early education and care services. Now, I can understand why they... Um, why they want to keep their early education and care sector in place, and I can understand why the education and care sector want to be kept in place. But it seems like they didn't backflip because it was the best thing for children. It was all based around this KPMG report that showed that um, most of the services would go under if it was, um, you know, implemented. And it just seems like we're missing out on children's needs once again. Even yes, it wasn't. They, they weren't necessarily central to that decision making. Yeah, it's the impact yeah. of the lobbying from the business perspective, I suppose. Yeah, and I can understand services lobbying like that, but it just seems a bit nutsoy to me. So I mean, there's a very, there is a very. From that perspective, particularly in a state like Tassie, once once services go, they're gone, aren't they? I mean, they can't oh, be yeah, for sure. they can't be revived again. So there's there's and it was especially uh, true for for you know some of the more um, regional and remote ones in Tasmania. A larger proportion of those would go. Some of the Hobart ones would have scraped through, but not the ones in you know smaller areas. Hmm. An interesting outcome. So I'm a little bit scared about saying all of that on air because I, do, I, you know, I haven't followed all the ins and outs of it. I read up on it today. If I have it wrong, please let us know and I'll be happy to retract any of my comments there. Um, now, the other article that I've got, because um, I'm being Liam and introducing my own articles here. Thanks, Lisa. Um is that uh, um, uh, Queensland childcare centres are breaking down gender stereotypes. So would you believe it? In Queensland, we have boys in pink choo-choos and girls in firefighting outfits. And the reason I've included this is not because of the ridiculous article, because obviously, you know, um, we've had children... Um, you know, dressing in gender-neutral dress-ups, as they're called in this article, for ages and ages. But because it's a really interesting, um, uh, you know, it shows really interestingly how stories get into the media. So this appears just to be, you know, a story about a, a, a childcare service that's allowing gender-neutral play. It has, um, a, a, you know, a quote for balance coming from the Australian Christian lobby, which says that the manipulation of gender roles is getting out of hand. Children will gravitate to whatever play they want without adults directing. So... Um, uh, she also said talking about gender-neutral play makes children into sexual beings. I don't quite see the connection, but, yeah, okay. But the reason why this article got written up in the paper, that entered a paper and then it was picked up um, by Channel 10 after that, 
It's because this particular service um, employs a PR consultant to try and get their name in the media. Mm. So yeah. this, once I, I checked back, there was three or four stories that were as similarly um, silly as this. One, you know, was about how they used technology in their service, you know, because that's as novel as gender-neutral dress-ups. And then the next one was about, oh, what was it? It was, um, oh, yes, that, you know, they actually offered a, a you know, allergy-free service at their service again presenting it as a really novel thing as if they were the only service that had ever thought to do that sometimes on my news feeds i get um pr releases from um people who are trying to get childcare centers in their names and some of the stories that they try and float are just you know like absurd nobody would want to run about them or the same as this it's presented as if it's unusual when in fact it's very usual so that's why i had these two stories on the list tonight now, well, what about they're not spending uh, well they're not spending money on um they're not spending any money on pr they're spending it on the children we should be applauding that lisa <laughs> <laughs> um i think they are spending money on pr it's just not well spent money right. <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks lisa now leanne what are you oh, i just oh. i just tried to introduce her there you you were going to shut up so <laughs> i said leanne what are your stories this week <laughs> i was just i was taking a quick break during your two but i was going to struggle on to do a quick intro to Leanne. Oh, that's so good. I'm very brave. <laughs> well, I'll do this news item then. Um, so this is the initial um, findings from the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, the preliminary report on Camp Australia's bid to buy Junior Adventures Group, which is the outside school hours care services. And should they be successful in, in going forward and buying these, they would own uh, the one in four of the nation's before and after school care services would be run by the same provider and in Victoria it would be closer to two in every three. So this is where the um, the ACCC has become involved in the purchase, which is a great thing, and their preliminary findings show that that would be a very negative thing for uh, outside school hours, care services, and, and predominantly for children, which it's great to see that the sort of measures that we have in place to prevent um, the issue around competition, it's, it's actually around competition rather than around children, uh, is showing that this would not be a very good idea because the lack of competition would drive standards down. So although um, I kind of object to the fact that it's, from a perspective of a business competition, the point is that they have actually found that this wouldn't be so good in the first instance. So it's just the preliminary findings and mm. it will go on to the next stage of, um, of this inquiry. But it's good to know that that measure is actually in place to prevent this happening at this stage. So that's the, uh, that's the ACCC article. And that's good. I know there's a lot of advocates in New South Wales that are probably happy that that's at least uh, the first step. So I think from here, the, the the company can come back and sort of make the case as to why it should still go ahead. And do we know when there's a decision likely to be made on that? You It'll don't be really know. the rep 
final report's in October, so okay. it's not too far away. Not too far away. Um, and I guess they can they can appeal that and and do do all of those things. That These things need usually to be done, drag out I, for a while. They do, but I think the the good thing is that obviously it was very public that they were um, making this investigation, and there was a lot of. Uh, info around social media to encourage people to respond to it. So I imagine there's been some fairly strong submissions made and particularly a strong voice from uh, the National Outside School Hours Services Association. I think it's called that. It's NOSHA anyway. Um, and uh, Robin Munro-Miller. So that's that's great to see that first finding. I just seem to remember something about um, uh, uh, the ACCC and ABC Learning going back all those years ago that they tried to get ABC Learning to not be able to take over, it was Peppercorn or one of those ones, um, because it would mean that they'd have too much control of the market. And... ABC Learning just went ahead and did it anyway, and ACCC <laughs> had to, um, you know, um, they breached, uh, you, know, you know, they said that ABC Learning breached, on, uh, you know, enforceable undertakings, but then in the end they discontinued proceedings um, against them and... Um, uh, I can't quite remember, you know, what it was all about, but I remember I think they thinking still at the wouldn't time have had, that, yeah. that I, I think they still was a bit of a toothless tiger. But they still wouldn't have had the same control of the market that this represents because they still did have a smaller share of, of the market. And I, I think it always comes down to whether competition um, is actually good or bad. You know, it, it always comes back to that, that point and whether that would, would compromise the quality. Yeah. Fair enough. Good to know. Um, is that was there one more from you, Leanne, or was that it for our news? Oh, this there week? there is there is one more and it'll just be a quick one, but um, it's probably one from Lisa and I to you, Liam, just to oh. let you know that Australia is in the grips of its worst flu season in 15 years. (laughs) And the title of this is It's Been Hell, and there's a lot of pictures of a man lying on a lounge (laughs) blowing his nose. So it's um, it's, it's been 71,200. a good looking man, I thought, there. He didn't look very sick to me at all. He doesn't look sick, does he? But he's got a lovely rug. I quite like that rug. Lovely doll. And there have been 71,256 cases, confirmed cases of the flu across the country this year. With the hardest hit being children and teenagers aged 10 to 19, which means that all of the little um, rosters and duties that they do in the home haven't been done with the extra burden (laughs) being taken by the parents. (laughs) Do men do things in the home? No, children, 10 to 19. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's well, very, I'm, in, it's... I'm in good company, obviously. <laughs> you are. <laughs> the 10 to 19-year-olds. But we hope you get back soon, Liam. Yeah, but... we do. Even though we're teasing you about your illness, we wouldn't want to, you know, have the flu or even the man flu on anyone that we know. So Wonderful. So... Yes, so thanks for bringing us that, uh, Leanne. It was good to know I'm in good company now. 
It's probably time to move on to our main uh, feature for this episode. And Lisa, this is an interview you've conducted with an old friend of the podcast. Do you want to give us a quick intro before we cut over to that interview? Yes, so we asked Carl Hessian to tell us all about the Jobs for Families package and what services should be doing in their preparation leading up to to its implementation in July next year. Fantastic. Thanks, Lisa. It's going to be good to hear from Carl again. So stay with us just for a quick little musical break and then we'll be back with Lisa and Carl. And hello, Carl Hessian. Hessian or Hessian? I never know. Is it Hessian? It is Hessian, yes. Hi, Lisa. Hi, how are you? (laughs) Well, thank you, well. That's good. Um, We've decided to have Carl, who um, regular listeners would know we've had on the Early Education Show once before, because we think it's really important that people think a bit about the Jobs for Families package before it's implemented and think about what practices at their services they may need to change before then or could change. And Carl is one of the people that understands the complexities of childcare benefit and childcare rebate and the new childcare subsidy much more than Liam or Leanne or I. So we decided to ask him in to help us once again. So thank you, Carl. No, you're welcome. Okay, so one of the things that I want to ask you about is that you keep saying to us that people should move to fortnightly in arrears billing in preparation for the Jobs for Families package. Can you explain why? Well, in a nutshell, Lisa, it's basically because of the, com- the complexity of, of managing it. Um, and there are, there are two things in that question, I suppose, I'd like to take a look at. And the, and the first is the, um, the nature of uh, billing in advance in the first place. And then secondly, we can look at a better way of doing it that might fit in with um, the childcare subsidy system that's, that's coming through. So in the first instance, just so that your listeners are all aware of what we're talking about, um, it's a common practice in the sector that services would look forward a couple of weeks into the future at the care that a child is booked for and then um, look at the value of that care and then deduct from that what an anticipated or an expected entitlement is that's going to be um, coming through and then charging a gap to to families. And I think it's useful to sort of look at the history of this. this Sorry, can I just translate that for people that that might have been a bit complex for? Basically, you're saying that a lot of services bill in advance. Yeah? That's correct. Okay, so how did it develop? Um, well, back in the back in the days before CCMS, um, childcare benefit was distributed to services in advance, and it was um, subsequently acquitted. And when CCMS was um, deployed more more widely, some six seven years ago now, um, uh, services tended to stick with that practice, and it was kind of okay in the early days in that transition because. Um, the only real entitlement that was being distributed to services for families was childcare benefit. And the vast majority of families in a service would have been paying the full value of the, the, the upcoming care. Um, but from 
about, I think it was late 2011, families had the choice of whether they would like to have their childcare rebate um, distributed to the service on their behalf. And over time, what we've seen is more and more families have chosen that option. And so uh, more and more families are paying a, a gap amount which is less than the full value of the care. And what's happened, of course, in most recent years is families have reached their caps earlier and earlier as fees have gone up. Uh, and administering um, gaps for individual families has become a, a very, very complex um, operating um, Okay, so what do, what yeah you know, what do we need to do in the future, and how do we do it? Well, looking looking forward to um, well, not looking forward to, but coming up next year, of course. I don't think anyone's up. looking forward to the jobs for families <laughs> package. Well, the, the, the childcare subsidy system um, pretty much knocks this practice on the head, in my view, in a practical sense, for a couple of reasons. Um, the, the first is that. Whereas at the moment families have got an option about where their entitlements are sent, from the 2nd of July next year, it's compulsory that all entitlements will be sent to services on families' behalf. So the scope of the system is going to increase. Um, within that, of course, as well, the expectation is that um, more families would receive more money. That may or may not happen, but that's the expectation at this point. And so the, the result of that is that the actual amount that services would be collecting for families um, from 7 July next year would go down. And it gets to the point where the cost of actually maintaining that system is uh, going to be outweighed, uh, sorry, the, the, the benefit of receiving uh, money in advance is going to be outweighed by the cost of trying to administer the whole thing, given that it's been um, at the government's position for years now that this is an undesirable um, practice in the sector uh, at any rate. So, so basically, you're saying is that it it's just administratively going to be a lot easier to bill in arrears, so that um, so that you make sure that you're billing what families actually owe after the subsidy comes in. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct, and especially especially given the nature of the, the uncertainty at this point around how many hours per fortnight families are going to be receiving and how that's going to be um, um, sorted out, the natural, the natural thing to do would be to, to um, as, as much as possible, look to the um, look to billing on a cycle which aligns with the, the Centrelink fortnight um, uh, so that any mismatch from one, out, from one to the next is taken care of. Okay, so practically how should people do it? Should they start to do it now um, or should they, um, you know, should they wait until, you know, the 2nd of July next year when the Jobs for Families package comes in? Um, can I just um, reframe that question slightly there, Lisa? The, any time, Carl, any time.
they do it because they're worried that families are going to run away owing them money. Well, that, that's exactly right. That, that's, that's, it's that idea that this is a, a form of security in case somebody um, leaves the service abruptly. But, and I think but on each of those points, though, I think you can a service that is capable of reflective practice would look at it and say, you know, do these circumstances, do these scenarios actually stack up? Is this actually a practice that addresses any one of those three, you know, um, those three situations? Or is there a better way of doing things? So, so rather than saying to a service, I, I guess so bluntly, you should do this, my, my starting point would be to say, you've got the time now to reflect on why you do this if you do it, and you've got the time to think of a better way of doing it, because what's going to happen next year is there's going to be a lot of change, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to react and respond to a lot of things, and this is just one practice that you can look at now and have the, the opportunity to, to, to redo, maybe from the beginning of um, January 2018, uh, if you decide that this is... Really okay, so so what about if I'm listening to this and I think, okay, Carl seems to know his shit, I'll change that practice, but what if families run away with, you know, owing me money? Is there another way I can solve that one? Well, the answer would vary slightly from state to state, but um, if, if the service has reflected on this and decided that the the reason why we charge an advance is because we want some security from a family, then the, the answer to that question would be, have you considered some kind of bond arrangement? Now, I know that's not going to work well for all services everywhere. Uh, in some states, it's more problematic. But um, that would be the, the first question I would, I would explore um, as, as being a better solution than charging the advance. Yeah, except the families that are already in, enrolled will get shits if you ask for a bond you know, if they've already been at your service for a few years. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. That's a, that's, that's a good point. But, but also recognise that at this point, the value of the um, charging in advance is going to be greater than the value of charging in advance in July next year. At this point in time, if you'll if you're come to the view that the reason why we charge in advance is because we want some kind of security, then logically the amount that you're collecting in advance right now is your security. And so the idea that you would take that and put that to one side and say, that's our bond for the family, and then immediately move to, to charging in arrears, well, that takes care of that from a logical point of view. Sorry, can really you, I'm, I'm thick around this kind of stuff. Can you explain that to me a bit more simply? I keep the <laughs> money... I, and I'm mindful, I'm mindful of the fact that I, I speak a bit too fast sometimes too. Okay, so I'll look at, that more, I'll look, I'll look at your argument more, more closely. If, if a service has, has it in its head that um, the reason why we charge in advance is because we need that money as a form of security in case the family leaves, then that security is only the gap. It's the anticipated gap after entitlements would be distributed. Now, of course, if a family leave abruptly, you can't claim any entitlements into the future anyway. So you're left with just that residual gap amount. So in a sense, that, that thinking, that, that idea that this is our security in case a family leaves is really based upon an amount that is never going to be the full value of the Yeah, family. okay, I get, I get that, I get that. But how do I, how do I change from, you know, from charging in advance, like, to charging in arrears? Give me the, the absolute practicals of how I do that. The, the, um, the simple practical point, 
say at this invoicing point in time, we're going to take the current amount that we've already charged families in advance, we're going to sweep that from their accounts and put it into, say, a bond account. And from that point on, having that board accounts back to zero, you're only charging in a reduce. So does it mean that I don't bill for four weeks? Like, I'm really being thick here, right? You just need to make it really simple for me. Um, depending on how far in advance your, your... Let's say it's, your for the sake of argument, it's two weeks. Okay, so it's, let's say it's two weeks. Well, um, when you get to the, the start of a new invoice cycle, you would look forward two weeks and collect that money from families... Yep. Like yep. yep. Okay. And and at that point, you've, you've received all of your entitlements up to date, up up up, up to the previous um, weekend in the previous Sunday. Let's say that, let's say do this on a Monday. You would look, you would look forward and you would charge families as per normal for the upcoming two week period, and you would collect that cash. But um, rather than uh, well, once once you've bought the accounts up to a zero balance a dollar zero balance so they're not actually in credit you would sweep all of the cash that was in advance from that account by creating say a bond charge for want of a better word that bond charge would offset the amount that you've already collected in advance and then you just keep that in a separate account yeah in two weeks in two weeks time you're just charging strictly in arrears so that's starting to get in a slightly sort of a slightly technical approach so maybe if I take, take it back to a higher level there for a minute Lisa the, the, the idea that if you want to move away from this practice um, and charge strictly in arrears comes down to a tactical sort of an implementation question um, and there's uh, there's a variety of different ways of doing that if that's what you'd like to, like to, to achieve but I guess that my, my point is that at this point in time right now this is the time in which you've got the option to really be thinking about it because the time again is next yeah, year. Yeah, I, I understand what, what you're arguing, but I just know that for a lot of people, the actual practical mechanics of that is quite hard to work out. So let me reflect back to you what I think you're saying is as a, let's say if you decide to do it as the 1st of January, any money that someone's got paid in advance from the 1st of January, you put into an account called, um, you know, bonds and, um, and zero out their account. You then wait um, two weeks and invoice them for the two weeks that they've just had. Yeah, look, I think that might help because it is like, you know, I've actually done bookkeeping for a service um, before and I'm struggling to imagine in how to do that in practical terms. Yeah, yeah I, appreciate, I appreciate that. And, yeah. and, I, and I guess there's, this is the gap between the, the, the theoretical position of saying um, reflect on changing it and then physically how would you do it. Yeah. And obviously the two kind of go hand in hand because it needs to be a practical thing that you can do. Okay, so tell me, Carl, if you were running a service at this point in time, what other changes would you implement now so that you'll be ready for the Jobs for Families package? Um, yeah, again, I, I think that I would be approaching that question from the point of view of um, reflective practice first and foremost. And 
things which is really, really clear is that there's going to be an improved focus on compliance. And I think that there's a risk that, that this is an area in which services might find themselves inadvertently um, uh, tripped up. So you're saying what other things could services um, uh, look at doing, look at, look at, look at implementing. I, I would be approaching that question from saying, um, what do we do to make sure that we're absolutely satisfied that we're compliant with the, the current family assistance legislation um, before we even move on to the um, JFF legislation? Because we know that um, um, compliance and compliance monitoring is going to be a far stronger element of the new system than the current system. And so to that end, I would actually be encouraging services to go back and reread the current CCMS handbook and specifically the general fact sheets that are online with regards to um, charging and fee practices. And just make sure that you've got your processes, your, your processes are currently in place to capture all of those things that the government have already flagged as being, as being issues. So uh, from your experience, do you think many people... Uh, are having current compliance problems? Look, it's a, that's a hard question to answer. I'm just more mindful of the fact that um, that many people haven't really been trained in how to use um, CCMS or, or necessarily all of the ins and outs of their software and, and what the government expectations are on them. And I think that the government takes it as read that the sector is probably a little bit more sophisticated in its understanding than it actually is of what its requirements are. So I think it's a very, it's a very, very simple thing to do to, to go away and have a look at some of the concerns the government has and make sure you're addressing them. And if I just mention, I mention a couple because these are ones that are always, um, uh, always come up. The, the things around, for example, cessation of care and just making sure that you're not inadvertently claiming for days after a child has physically left your service or in fact claiming for days before they physically start at a service. That's, that's the sort of thing which it, it's easy to make a mistake on in some environments yep. and you just want to make sure you've got a process to capture that. You also want to make sure I think that um, any third party kind of payments that are coming through, whether they be for um, uh, you know, an AMET program or other ESL type payments or council payments and so forth, if these are payments that are supposed to be being, being applied to, uh, to um to accounts and then daily fees being discounted by those amounts. I think you want to make sure that you are, you are, you are meeting all of those requirements. Um, moving away from that slightly, the other thing that I think that you can do at the moment is familiarize yourself with the idea of making sure you've got a contract with families, a written contract that specifies just exactly what it is the family is, is um, um, uh, responsible for paying for and who's responsible for paying for that. I think the whole area is one that services can actually spend some time looking at now. Okay, that's scaring me a bit. We've never kind of had written contracts with families before. Well, I think this is exactly why it's a good point to mention it now for two reasons. One, I, I don't think it's scary, but it is work involved in going through and looking at, for example, enrolment forms. And typically when you look at a children's service, they would approach an enrolment form from two seconds. But look at it from the point of view of what do we need operationally to collect from families to be able to run? And secondly, what are the, what do the regulations say? And I don't think we, services tend to look at it from the point of view of what is a contractual obligation? And that's an area that the government has got a lot of interest in. Um, it's, 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 
it's there clearly in the legislation, and, and I think we might have touched on this very shortly after the legislation was um, was uh, enacted. Um, but um, it's it's one of those things where you know if you take the time to look at it now, even if you don't have um, something up and running until the middle of next year, at least starting to get into the mindset that this is the way that the government is reviewing your relationship. It's between you and a parent, and that's what they value most. Hmm. Okay. So you were talking about discounting just then. Where does that leave us with universal access? Well, yeah, look, that's, that's, that's a particularly astute question, Lisa. Um, how, how, Thank how you. you. I like asking astute questions. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's my way of saying I don't really know the answer. Yeah. Um, I, 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 but it's a, look, it's a really excellent question because... I think that this is an area in which the interplay between universal access or the various kindergarten subsidies of the states and um, the current system and then, you know, JFF when it comes in, how that interacts is a little bit unsure. Um, if you look here in Victoria at the expectations, well, the expectations are, uh, are the same around any kind of third-party discounting. You, you know, the expectation is that in a long daycare setting, those payments are... Um, uh, uh, made through an account, and then the gap uh, charge is presented to the Commonwealth for um, for CCB and CCR assessment. And I, I I wonder how this is all going to work um, after the uh, after July second next year. Um, it seems as though we're kind of going down the path here of uh, you know the CCB and CCR is being replaced by a childcare subsidy, which is clearly. Uh, and it's framed as an entitlement, you know, you've got a job, you are entitled to this. And separately to that, there's this education payment supplement. And how the, how the two work together is, is a, I'm, not, I'm not really clear on, I'm sorry, Lisa. So I know that um, you're a software supplier, and so it might be hard for you to comment on this, but I've been quite public about my fears about the government um, uh, coming up with a computer system in time to... Um, uh, for July 2nd next year. Is the computer system on time? How complex is it? Give us as much thoughts of that as you're prepared to go on the record with. Well, I think um, there's a lot of, there are a lot of moving parts uh, in this. And um, when, you look at the, when you look at the time frame here, we're talking about um, IT being built in the legislation that was... Um, what passed in March and received Royal Assent sometime at the beginning of April. So um, only four months down the track so far of the, what would that be, a 15, 16 month implementation. Um, and when you look at the scope of the, the work that's involved, that's required under the new childcare uh, subsidy legislation, um, you can kind of see that, yeah, there is a huge amount of work that's involved. Uh, clearly, the interaction between whatever changes need to be made from the Centrelink site, um, the, the new gateway computer obviously needs to be built, gateway interface needs to be built, and then of course you've got all the software providers themselves need to get their um, packages meeting specification and um, deployed to the, to the sector. Uh, and then of course separately from all of that, the, the government needs to build a, you know, a, a separate interface for services to be able to meet other, um, um, other requirements under legislation and of course the government's looking at it. It's, it's with um, families electronically and how, how, it, how it interacts there. So, you know, there's a lot of, 
That sounds like a lot of different computer systems all trying to talk to each other. Am I right, or is it just one big thing? No, it's a lot of it's a lot of a lot of complex a lot of a lot of systems coming together, and I guess that's where a lot of the complexity is. Um, so, look, you know, it's an ambitious project. Uh, I've got to I've got to say that in my personal dealings with um, members of the various departments that, that I'm involved with, um, you know, they've they've actually demonstrated that they're um, they're very very focused on you know an outcome. I found them to be uh, to be to be very open and very forthcoming. Funny um, how a deadline yeah. does that for you. Uh, well, it's that focuses the mind, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, nobody, nobody, nobody actually wants to be in a situation in July next year, of course, where where um, where, where, where the system doesn't work. You know. So yeah, look, it's incredibly complex. Okay, um, so just let me ask you a final subset of that question. If you're a service, if you were, you know, director or manager of a service or let's say director or manager or CEO of a large organisation running a number of services, would you be putting anything into place on, you know, on the off chance that some of this may not be... um, as as together as one would want. Um, well, if I was a manager of a service or a director of a service, I think the first thing I would be doing is saying that no one's getting leave in June, July next year. And then but beyond that, I think I looked back earlier at um, some, some of the things we've talked about today so far. I think you know. They might, they might sound like they're kind of tangential and not relevant directly, but I think anything that a service can do that it can take control of now and look at and prepare itself for, you know, that kind of process sense, whether it be looking at billing or whether it be just making sure that they've covered all the bases on compliance, that kind of stuff, that's actually meaningful stuff that can be done this year because obviously there's going to be a whole lot of change which is going to come through next year that, you know, you're, not, you're just not going to know about. No one's going to know about until, um, until it until it's right at your feet, you know. Um, what kind of contingencies can you do, I suppose, is the, the question you're getting to. Um, yeah. I think we're not going to know until, you know, nearer the, nearer the time how it's all going to uh, how it's all going to unfold. But um, at, at this point, I guess I'd just be focusing on those things that have possibly, you know, irked you as a director or a manager for years on, on the operational side and saying, you know what, is this a practice which is going to be easier or harder come 2nd of July next year, and if it's going to be harder, maybe looking at it right now and going, do I need to do this? So a bit more of a, that, that call of the and 7 reflecting. Okay, I'm a bit of a cynic, and I look at systems like the NDIS system, which where for quite a few months suppliers simply weren't paid through that system in so that they were it was taking months for suppliers to be paid. Do you can you imagine a scenario where that would happen to childcare centres when the um, childcare subsidy just wasn't coming through to them? Um, well, drawing on that example, and look, I'm getting right out of my area that I don't know anything about here, but my understanding was that there were um, some form of, um, at least for the, in the NDIS, participants received more money on their planes than, than possibly they uh, than they were determined that they should have had because of like issues of the, the portal. Yeah. And that there were there were some um, suppliers that ended up um, being able 
Yep, that's I'm not right. sure that's quite what you're, what, what you're referring no, to. No, there was just a there was just a problem actually with yeah, you know, well, payment. Like, yeah, yeah. I, but I think that, that, that if, if there is some kind of problem like that, well, that's really well and truly out of all of our our hands, you know. Um, I, what would happen? I don't know. You know, is there a mechanism yeah. to make continuity payments to services? How would you equip that after the event? All that kind of stuff is, is something that um, would be well outside my. Um, yeah, I think that we can perhaps be reassured that when there was a bit of a hiccup when the CCMS program came through, there was some sort of continuity payments made right. then. Yep. You could just say, I need you know, X amount of money and they'd give it to you until they sorted out what the actual things were. about professional development that's being um, prepared or resource material that's been prepared to let services know about the accounting financial side of Jobs for Families package? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. And I'm going to have to plead slightly ignorance, slight ignorance on that one. Um, I haven't really been paying that much attention to that side of things. <laughs> There's a bit of else going on for us to look at. Um, uh, That's I fine. I haven't heard point. of anything much. I've heard yeah, a no, lot about okay. communication okay. strategies being done by big yeah. um, accounting firms, but I haven't heard of you know spe- specific. Um, gotcha. Yeah. I'm, I'm a, I don't know. I'm sorry. No. no. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you muchly once again for talking to the Early Education Show and for explaining those things that Leanne and Liam and I just are not that you know, okay with, like, money, because that's something that, yeah, you, I suppose you have to have to be really good at, and unfortunately, you know, they don't pay us that well on the early education show. Yeah, more for pity. Um, <laughs> I think, I think uh, um, it's, it's offering a great window into the world. I really enjoy what you're doing, so anytime I can help out, Lisa. <laughs> Thank you, Carl. You're welcome. All right, welcome back. So thanks again to Carl Hessian for joining us for his now second appearance on the show. So he's uh, he's bumping up in the rankings of most featured guest star on the podcast. And thanks, Lisa, for, for taking us through that discussion. It's um, We haven't talked about the Jobs That's of Families. That's okay, but apologies for some of the sound quality through that. We had technical problems as we were recording, so I hope it wasn't too hard to listen to. Well, hopefully not, and uh, it sounded okay to me. And in, it, it, one of those things where it gets into the weeds a little bit, but it's just going to be a huge change for the sector. So I do encourage everyone to, um, yeah, really sort of take on board Carl's feedback and start getting prepared for what's going to be a very challenging time for the sector. I think come uh, July twenty eighteen. But we'll move on to our recommendations for the week. And Leanne, what do you, what do you, what's that? What are you sending our way this week? Well, it's not a conversation article because that was nabbed by somebody else. But um, 
I'm, I'm actually recommending a book and it's the second edition of a book that was written by uh, Mangela Wanaganyaika, Sandra Cheeseman, Marianne Fennick, Faye Hadley and Wendy Shepherd. And it's uh, the second edition of the book, Leadership Contexts and Complexities in Early Childhood Education. And this is a wonderful book about how to be an intentional and active leader and I don't think we can have too many intentional and active leaders in the early childhood sector so I'm commending this book to you because the first edition was terrific and the second edition will be even more terrific. Yay! Wonderful. Uh, Lisa what are you you've well we know we know where it's from but what, uh, what article from the conversation are you bringing us? Look, I'm bringing one that came out um, the morning of us recording this um, on Tuesday, on the Tuesday of the week, and it's basically founding um, that it's found that um, a large part of inequality is based on on circumstances beyond a person's control, including half is due to your parents' occupation. Um, and but the the you know research has found that there's certain uh, times in a in a, a person's life where you can impact on that inequality to ensure greater social mobility and to ensure that the family that someone's is born into doesn't keep um, affecting them detrimentally throughout their life. And where do you reckon that this, um, this, you know, the best point for intervention is? Mm, hmm. Childhood. Oh, What's wow. the best form of intervention? Mm, early education. <laughs> so yeah. if we just make sure everyone gets early education, then there won't be as much inequality. Yay. That Pretty simple, really. Like a good Sounds like every other article we've ever read on early childhood education, it's value, but I'm happy for it again from the conversation. No, but because it was the conversation, it must be true, Amy. Yeah? Hey, look. Yeah, definitely. They keep writing definitely. them, we'll, we'll keep sharing them. Yep. That's right. And then I think this is the first time I've shared a video on the on their recommendations. But um, just really quickly, I'm sharing something that's posted on Facebook by BBC3, which is a, an online TV station in the UK. Um, just really quickly, it's about a uh, group um, that of uh, entertainers and sort of children's entertainers. They're called the Flying Seagull Project. And they it's a video about them going to refugee camps and entertaining the children there and using play to... Um, yeah, I guess in terms of do this support and, and help the children who are in these pretty horrific and terrible situations. So just the, a, a reminder of how important play is to, to young children and also a reminder of the experience of um, children in refugee situations. And I think there were some stats out recently from UNICEF that uh, children are more than half of all the uh, displaced people in the world, which is pretty appalling when we think about it. So it it's a really, yeah, really quick video, and it's just it's quite a nice. The other thing ones. that I took out of the video, Liam, is just the um, like how people like early childhood educators, how individuals can be really important in helping children in situations like those. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. We can change the world. So, they were wonderful human beings. They were just, you know, all of the ones that, um, you know, 
were, were focused on, you just thought yeah. these are the sort of people you'd love to have as educators in your service, and yeah. yet they've gone so much further than that. Yeah. And look, and I think, um, I don't know, it's something I always bang on about. It's bit, I think the video is set um, in, uh, oh, I feel really bad now. I think it's in, in, in Europe. It's not, it, I think they're Syrian refugees. There's a Syrian refugee camp there um, they're visiting. I think the camp's based in Europe. But I think it's important to remember um, in Australia, there are still currently, I think on last statistics, 47 children in immigration detention, including on uh, uh, Manus Island. No, not um, uh, Nauru. Sorry. Nauru. Uh, yeah. So this is still happening with bipartisan support in Australia by both of the major parties. So it's um, it, so it, it, this you know that issue is not a million miles away, literally not a million miles away from the issues that we need to confront here in Australia. This isn't something that just happens in other places and parts of the world. Um, but that that's that we're we're done for another for another week. We've got a couple of uh, two one reminder and one very exciting announcement to go through before we wrap up. Though we want to remind everyone about uh, the competition that's currently running to win a copy is fair, of copy of Fair's Fair by our very own Lisa Bryant and Dr. Red Ruby Scarlet. So just remember to head to our Facebook or Twitter pages and uh, comment or share or, or, or like or whatever the appropriate posts on those. And thank you everyone who's already done it. We've had some fantastic entries, and particularly the ones where we people are sharing images of themselves and, and the services they work at. There was a fantastic one that was from the air in a. <laughs> and then had a you and had our services here, a little red circle, which oh, is, yeah, that was fantastic. Great, wasn't it? That was wonderful. Mm. So we'll be announcing the winner of that competition in our next episode, so episode forty-two, which will be our next Friday. Uh, so you still got lots of time to get in. So make sure you you put in an entry there. And I've got to work out how I actually select it. I'll do some random. I'll put it in a spreadsheet and randomize it or something. So this is you know this is the important stuff everyone wants to know, obviously. But I will have to make sure it's fair, fairly <laughs> done, <laughs> or I or I wiggle my finger and just randomly drop it on a Facebook post or something. Um, and then we've been, look, we've been talking about it all year. I actually kind of want maybe Leanne to to, to formally announce this one because I know she's probably the most <laughs> excited. Not that Lisa and I are not excited, <laughs> but I feel the feeling Leanne is the most excited about this. So Leanne, what what can we what can we formally and officially tell people today. I don't know why I'm so excited about it, but I just have this vision of having, you know, end of year office drinks with some of our listeners if they're keen for it. And uh, so now we're going to have a live show at uh, in November on November the 14th in Glebe. And uh, we know it's Sydney. This is this is all we can afford. We can't get out of the city because it's going to cost us too much. And it's already, Lisa and I are already funding Liam's trip up from Canberra. <laughs> so um, you didn't know that, did you, Liam? Oh, <laughs> I didn't and, know that either. <laughs> oh, sorry, Lisa. So anyway, we're going to have a fun get together and record the show live. Who knows what will happen at that? I think it's uh, anything can happen on that night. And uh, I think, Liam, you're going to put up some sort of booking possibility That's for right. people. So as this so episode if- yeah, as this episode's published, if you head to early education show dot com uh, forward slash live, you'll find a link to actually book tickets for this yeah, very exciting event. Yeah, we're just going to have some fun, basically. That's all it is. We're just going to get together, record the show live, and maybe we'll have a few sort of spots where people can come and talk to us um, and be on the early education show. And we're hoping that that might be of interest to some people. Now, people, 
you got to get onto this because if we kind of put there a room for ourselves, (laughs) it would be sad. But we could try and fill it with family. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) I'll be dragging my family along, so we might just have to chuck them in the audience. Exactly. Well, they'll be serving the drinks, won't they? Yeah, that's right. And. so, yeah, I mean, it's just an opportunity to get together and maybe meet a few other early education show listeners, and we would love to see you there. Yeah, so that is going to be in uh, mid-November, which is plenty of time to organise um, to get there. We would love to see as many people as possible there. But as we said, head to earlyeducationshow.com forward slash live, and you will find the links to uh, find out more about that event. We're, we're very much looking forward to it. Uh, but And it's, let- it's like all proper PD events because it's got an early bird rate. That's um, right. Of, yeah. of how much, Liam? So if you book before the end of uh, October, uh, it'll be $20, but we'll be 25 after that. Which is pretty good, I think, for spending time with the three of us rabbiting on about early childhood. That's a bargain at twice the price. I wanted to charge about $200 for that, but you two talked me down. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Get, get onto that. But we're, 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 we'd love to, to see some of our listeners in person. And it, it'll, it'll be a fun show. I'm already planning some, uh, some trivia quiz style uh, things for the two of you about the show. Oh, I love <laughs> really? that. Oh, question. If it's an early childhood event, would there be, will there be food there? Yes, there is going to be food. And the food is going to be supplied, uh, not free of charge, obviously, but it is going to be supplied by um, one of the uh, cafes in Newtown that is a um, a social, um, oh, what's it called? What are I, Social it's, enterprise. It's Social enterprise, thank you. I've been banging on about this. Um, social enterprise, uh, which is um, run by one of the refugee organisations. So we will have a little bit of food, Lisa, as well. So for their 20 bucks, they not only get us, <laughs> but they get food as well. Well, they'll get a small bowl of, you know, spiced peanuts or something. Oh, no, it'll be, <laughs> it'll be a peanut-free event. It's, this is the, it's going to be the event of the year, everyone, so make sure you get on to book that in and, and share it with everyone you know, whether they listen to the show or not. We'd love to see lots of people there. Uh, but let's let's wrap it up for another week. We've kept everyone as well for another lengthy episode, which is all we seem to know how to do these days is do hour plus episodes. Uh, so if you can, if you want to get in touch with us and find out more about who we are and what we do and book into a live show, perhaps, uh, go to earlyeducationshow.com. You can also click contact us to get in touch. Um, while you're there, if you click support the show, we would be eternally grateful. That'll take you to a link to, to support the show financially for as little as $1 a month, which means we can do lots of fun things like more live shows and more competitions and more of those kind of things so that's really really appreciated if you have the capacity to do that um if you can't do that if you can head to the apple podcast store and give us a rating and review that really helps other early childhood professionals and friends find the show uh, and uh, join the, the little community we're building here um you can get in touch with us on facebook and twitter both of those were at early edu show and all three of us are uh, primarily hanging around being snarky and sarcastic on twitter so you can find me at Liam McNicholas and me at Lisa J Bryant and me at Leanne M Gibbs 3 and until we're back with you next week it's been a pleasure as always both of you and we'll see you next week so until then it's bye from me and from me and from me
we asked um, Carl Hessian back on the show to explain to us um, what services should be thinking about in terms of financial administration before the Jobs for Australia package. So we're just looking at... Um... Jobs for Australia or Jobs for Australia? <laughs> <laughs> jobs for Australia. Is that a better or worse it's name? I can't decide. Like make, make America great again. I think, well, Lisa, I think to be fair, I think it's the Jobs for New Zealand package now. <laughs> it, is, it is for that. <laughs> yeah, Jobs for Australia package. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear well, We've got our blooper for the end of the show anyway <laughs> I can't even think of its right name now Just take a deep breath Do pause and then just say the jobs for families package And I'll splice it in Oh, no. How many glasses of wine? I think she's broken. <laughs> None. Oh, maybe <laughs> that's the problem. Oh, dear. <laughs>